<laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for bringing us again together and giving us this privilege of studying your word. We pray for understanding, Father, not that we may be smart, but that we may live with the hope of the resurrection, the hope of salvation, the hope of your work being completed in our lives. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. Fred asked if I could do a quick review of, oh, oh, we're not on the screen yet. Um, Let's see. Okay, let's see if I can. do a, a, a quick review of what was going on in 6-4 to 6. Four to six. Um, the views that we proposed uh, that have been given, this is from the ESV Study Bible, which is a fine study Bible. Um, uh, one view is that Hebrews 6 is talking about true Christians who can fall away and lose their salvation. A second view is They are not true Christians because they have not made true saving response to the gospel, resulting in genuine faith, love, and perseverance. So since 9 to 12 talks about perseverance and these people don't persevere, then they're not saved. Third view is the warnings are uh, the means that God uses to challenge true Christians, that should be Christians, not Christians, uh, to persevere in their faith. Uh, This is common among Calvinists, since Calvinists hold clearly that you don't lose your salvation, then they have to account for the warnings in Hebrews, and so the warnings are the means of of bringing about the perseverance that's necessary. And then fourth, the falling away has to do with loss of heavenly rewards. One uh, group of people, they call themselves free grace movement, says that you can be saved but have no works and so when the kingdom comes you will be in heaven but you won't have any part in the kingdom and uh, um, so that that's you know I'm thinking to myself heaven's a bad thing right and uh, chapter 10 it's 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 a it's an important passage and Fred said this is the most difficult passage in the Bible. I said, no, chapter 10 is far worse. In chapter 10, if we sin willfully after having come to the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin but a certain fearful expectation of of, um, uh, judgment and fiery, uh, uh, I forget the language now, fiery indignation against those who are in opposition. And he says, uh, if anyone set aside the law of Moses, died without mercy under two or three witnesses, how much more severe punishment do you suppose he shall be counted worthy who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified an unholy thing, and has has, uh, treated with disrespect the Holy Spirit? And they say the, the more severe punishment than death without mercy is loss of reward. I, excuse me, if you're saved, loss of reward cannot be a more severe punishment than 
death without mercy. Are you with me here? So that view I just don't think works. So, so what can we make of this? The five characteristics we identified, uh, uh, the four, this way last time. Um, once enlightened, the word enlightened is used <clears throat> in the Old Testament as well as in the New to refer to uh, rec- receiving information from God. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when uh, Manoah asks the angel about how to raise the boy, Samson, he asks for enlightenment. Are you with me here? So the concept of being once enlightened would mean something like that word once is critical here and it's more qualitative than it is numerical. Uh, They have gotten the full message and they got it clearly. Are you with me here? Second, what does it mean to taste the heavenly gift? Uh, Well, it's not uncommon. I have a commentary at at, at my office that says the, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only problem is it's a different word in Greek. They're in the same field, so it could mean the same thing. But my first response is not to say, if I have two words that mean the same thing in English, they must mean the same thing in Greek. They, they need not mean the same thing in Greek. So I have to ask, well, what does it mean to taste the heavenly gift? Well, to taste, we suggested, means something like to have a true experience of. It may not be a permanent experience. So in chapter 2, Jesus tasted of death. Yeah, it was a complete experience of death, but it wasn't a permanent one. Does that make sense to you? So taste the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift could, could be salvation, but it could be any number of other things. And we talked about the possibility and, this, and, and in fact, the reality that Judas worked miracles. Do you recall discussing this? Like everybody else. Yeah. Um, by whose power did Judas work miracles? The Holy Spirit. Uh, he has tasted the heavenly gift. Are you with me here? So it, it's, it's, that's an equally possible interpretation. Especially, though, and let me go back to things that we've been belaboring since the beginning. If salvation in Hebrews is not new birth and justification, then um, if, if no place else it's necessary to make salvation, new birth, and justification in the book of Hebrews, then why do I have to make this somewhat obscure phrase, taste the heavenly gift, a reference to new birth and justification? Does that make sense to you? So here, I'd rather read it in light of the ongoing message of the book as it's been developing and say, there are people um, who experience the work of God in their lives who are not themselves saved. I gave the illustration of the man in John 5 who is healed at the pool of Bethesda but then becomes um, a kind of betrayer. Uh, That's where the trouble begins in John for Jesus. Up to that time, everything's been very positive in the response of the people. But from that point on, he's in trouble. And you have the key sermons or key discourses that he gives in chapters 5 and 7 and so on 
that address that problem. Um, so um, does receiving a miracle or doing a miracle necessarily entail that you are born again? And the answer is in Matthew 7. Many shall say in that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and did we not work many miracles in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Um, was, is every miracle worker born again? Well, the answer has to be no, but let me just make it a little more sure. <clears throat> you know the name Balaam? You know another prophet in that story? There are two. No, he's a king. The donkey! Is the donkey born again? <laughs> does, does the moral quality of the, of the uh, creature uh, determine whether God can do miracles through that creature or not? The answer evidently is no. <laughs> so, so if we've read, tasted the heavenly gift properly, then it may mean that they have actually done miracles in the name of, of Jesus. Could it also refer to the uh, nine lepers who did not? The, well, that, that's a little later. I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll get to that very shortly. Uh, third, become partakers of the Holy Spirit. That word partakers is in quotation marks, and Jim, we're just reviewing some things that we've talked about. Uh, the word partakers is in, in quotation marks because that's what the King James says. But we noticed in, in Hebrews 1 that the same word means uh, uh, companions, partners. And I proposed if, if the interpretation of taste of the heavenly gift is right, then these people are co-laborers with the Holy Spirit. Because the, the, the agent, the, the person of God that is working in Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Yes or no? You comfortable with that? All right. Pat, you look like you got a question. No. Okay. Uh, go ahead. I, I was wondering if it couldn't also even be those that that followed Jesus, listened to his message, were recipients of the miracles, eight of the five loaves and the two fishes, and get we, all of those. We'll get to that in just a minute, but I want to stay here for, for, for now. We'll be right there. The, the fourth one on the screen is, is going to address that. Uh, so, so the word metachos or partaker would be better translated in this case, I think, co-laborer, partner uh, with the Holy Spirit. Fourth, and these are four characteristics that these, that these people that the author is warning his readers about have. They're going to have a fifth that we'll look at very, very shortly. The fourth one, they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. There are two problems here immediately. One is, what is the specific way to translate the first part of that phrase? Um, they have tasted that the word of God is good, is a, is a good sound way to translate this. Um, so what they've done, if, if this is a, the right way to read it, then they have seen that what God is doing is so good. Folks think, what is it that was so bad in what Jesus did that led, led Judas to betray? 
What was it about Jesus that was so bad that made the, the Pharisees oppose him and, and aim to kill him? Claim to be God. Would you say, Richard? Claim to be God. Yeah, but what did he do that was so bad? Jim? He didn't become their Messiah. He didn't become their expected Messiah. He works miracles. He does marvelous things for people. He undercuts their authority. That's what's so bad. Are you with me here? Um, so they have seen prophecy fulfilled. Yes? Uh, this this phrase, the good, the good word of God, also appears elsewhere in the, in the prophets where it talks about the fulfillment of the promises of God from the past. So it's possible. I, I don't know which way to go with this. There are two possible ways to read it. Both are, are very defensible, so it's kind of hard to know. But they've, they've experienced the fulfillment of prophecy. Think, Judas walked with the fulfillment of prophecy for the whole of the ministry of Jesus. <laughs> he lived with eschatology being fulfilled. Um, so he tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. This is where I think what Fred and Kay, you were talking about, these people have actually not only perhaps worked miracles, but had miracles worked in their own lives. So the people at the feeding of the 5,000 ate the bread. They didn't actually see the miracle. Only the disciples did. They didn't know where the, the food came from necessarily. Only the disciples knew where the, the food came from. In, in the changing of water to wine, it's only the disciples and the servants who knew where the water came from. Remember this? Are you with me here? But these are people who saw um, and experienced, some of them, miraculous work of God. These are people who have enormous privilege. And by the way, if these definitions are right, none of us has, has the possibility of doing this in the same way these people do. Because none of us saw the, world, the earthly ministry of Jesus. None of us walked with him. Are you with me here? Every one of us heard the gospel from another mere human being, not from an apostle. Just like First John one. Yeah. So, so in in the most obvious sense in which these terms are given, this would be almost unique to the to the first century. <clears throat> but still. When I read the scriptures, I'm hearing the voice of God, and if I reject the voice of God, then I'm in the same boat that these people are in. Does this make sense to you? But they have a fifth characteristic, and this is the key one. They fall away. Um, this uh, falling away is, is roughly synonymous with um, what we read in chapter 2, sorry, chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Beware, brothers, lest there shall be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in withdrawing from the living God. Go back there. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 12. It's important to see this. I point out to you that this is chapter 3. And why is that important? It comes before chapter 4. And it follows chapters 1 and 2. Yes? So look at verse 12. Beware, brothers, lest there shall be in any of you, um, any of you who have these four characteristics. 
that are on the screen of the five, first four. These would be more likely to be the leaders, as we asserted last time. Um, the newest believer wouldn't have all this. Do you follow? So this would be more likely somebody who's a leader. And I just point out to you, Judas was a leader among the leaders. He was an opinion setter. When the woman brought the perfume to anoint Jesus' feet, it was Judas who said, why this waste? Why couldn't this have been sold for 200 denarii and all the money given to the poor? And the other Gospels, when they tell the same story, it's all the disciples who are saying that. It's not Judas. So he's an opinion setter, number one. Number two, he's trusted with the funds of the group. He's a leader. Yes or no? Yes? All right. So this is, this is pretty pointed. Uh, beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in withdrawing from the living God. We have the word in English, apostasy. That word comes from this word in Greek. Um, now, now, what does it mean in Hebrews 3.12 to withdraw from the living God? Or depart from the living God? Who is the living God? Jesus is the living God. Go back to chapter 1. Who is this one? Well, verse 4 says he has a more excellent name than the angels. And verse 5 defines it as son, which is then defined as king, which is then expanded to include the category, the legitimate category of God, and which is then expanded to entail that this one is both distinct from God and yet sits on the throne of God and is David's Lord. In a theocracy, what is the proper role of a human king? To represent God. So who's above the king in the theocracy? God. If Jesus is Lord, who is he? If he's David's Lord, who is he? He's God. He has to be. So the point of this, of, of Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, and the point of Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, is going to be to in, in this uh, falling away. It'll have to be falling away from the living God. It has to do in some way with the identity of Jesus. This is not talking about sinning deliberately. I had an uncle who was a godly man. He really was. Um, in the providence of God, he had Alzheimer's the last years of his life and had a, his, he, he nearly killed his wife two or three times because of the Alzheimer's, but he was a very godly man. But he said, um, if I, he was a metal worker in the Los Angeles shipyards, he had his own shop there in the shipyards, and he said, if I'm working in my shop and I hit my thumb and take the names, name of the Lord in vain, that's a mistake. But if I set out deliberately to sin and carry it out, then I lose my salvation. That's a, that's a deliberate sin. Hebrews chapter 10, if we sin willfully 
after having come to the knowledge of the truth. Problem with that is, under the old covenant, I'm sorry, um, uh, you know the term unwitting sin? Unwitting sin? Yes, no, move your heads. Okay, an unwitting sin is one that is, uh, I guess the best I can do is, is to contrast it with the opposite. It's not defiant. It's something you do by mistake. It's something you do um, maybe out of fear, out of foolishness, ignorance. ignorance, but it's not defiant. It's not fist in the face. Do something about it if you think you're big enough. Uh, but those unwitting sins require the death of a sacrifice. Are you with me? So if unwitting sin requires the death of a sacrifice, that entails that the offerer of the sacrifice has to die if he doesn't make the sacrifice. Are you with me? Yes, no? Right? Then my uncle's distinction falls down on the basis of what God taught Israel for 15 centuries before he sent Jesus. <laughs> Non-deliberate sin is not just a mistake. It's death-dealing. Are you with me? So, so falling away here is more than committing some really bad sin. That's not the issue. The issue is going to be what you do with Jesus. For look at what follows in chapter 6. Since they re-crucify the Son of God and put him to an open shame. The specific sense in which this is under, to, to be understood will be clearer when we get to chapter 10. So I'd like to just hold off until chapter 10 um, uh, to, uh, to explain this. But at this point to say, it's going to have to do with your attitude toward Jesus and his sacrifice and priesthood. I want you to remember that Paul, Paul, <laughs> Paul wrote the whole Bible. <laughs> so, uh, the author of Hebrews introduced the Melchizedek and priesthood in chapter 5. Then he walked away from it to talk about this. He hasn't abandoned it. He's, he's giving us the importance of it. The Melchizedek and priesthood of Jesus. What difference does it make to reject the Melchizedek and priesthood of Jesus? in favor of the Aaronic priesthood. Folks, this isn't going out and becoming a, a pornographer or going out and becoming a, an abortionist. This is just leaving Jesus to go back to the Aaronic priesthood. This is deliberate sin. So far, so good? Are you with me here? Mind you, at the, uh, a little bit later in chapter 7, he's going to come right back to, or rather, a little bit later in chapter 6, he's going to come right back to the Melchizedek and priesthood of Jesus. So the author introduces this section with Melchizedek. He continues it with Melchizedek. What's the chance that he's talking about it still in this passage? Does that make any sense to you? Yes, no? We don't think in those terms, but almost invariably we talk in those terms. Yes? I, I'm getting this book edited on Romans, and uh, at one point my editor said uh, I had a, a sentence that began with he. And he said, who's he? God? Moses? Paul? Who's he? I said, well, it's the 
two words before, it's Jesus <laughs> in the previous <laughs> sentence. <laughs> and three words after, it's Jesus again. So <laughs> that's the way we talk, isn't it? Yeah. Well, why should the scriptures be different? They're written in more or less conversational Greek. Are you with me here? Editors are horrible people. Yes. <laughs> There's a special place in purgatory for editors. <laughs> but, uh, um, no, my, my editor's an old friend, and, and uh, uh, we get along quite well together. The, the point, though, is then that we're not talking about people who have salvation. None of these characteristics entails new birth and justification. But we haven't seen anything, as far as I'm concerned, I haven't seen anything in the book of Hebrews that leads me to the conclusion that I should bring new birth and, and justification in. Even the concept of, of, of sanctification does not entail it. Uh, turn just a minute to chapter 10. I want to show you something there. In chapter 10, there are two... I beg your pardon? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if every book has to be Romans, then the other 65 are not necessary. So uh, in uh, chapter 10, um, verse 9, there are two passages I want us to look at. In verse 9, then he said, behold, I come to do your will. He takes away the first sacrifice system to establish the second. By which will... We have been sanctified through the, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see that, yes? We have been sanctified. Now turn later in chapter 10 to the more difficult passage than chapter 6. <laughs> later in chapter 10, verse uh, 29, How much more severe punishment do you suppose he shall be counted worthy who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, Count of the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, an unholy thing. If sanctification inherently means new birth and salvation and, and, and justification, then I have to come to the conclusion that this book teaches you can lose your salvation. And by the way, if it teaches you can lose your salvation, it teaches you can't get it back again. It's impossible to renew them to repentance, we said. And that, I think, is what comes up. No, not quite. Let me move on here. Um, uh, we, we continue to talk about impossibility last time. Is this a relative or an absolute impossibility? I argue from 618, 10.4, and 11.6. The other three times this word is used in, in the book of Hebrews, I argue that it is an absolute impossibility. God, God can't lie under certain circumstances. You can't please God without faith under certain circumstances. Under no circumstances can you please God without faith. Under no circumstances can God lie. Under no circumstances can the blood of bulls and goats take away sin. Yes? yes. So, under no circumstances is it possible to re renew them to repentance since they re-crucify the Son of God and for themselves, and put him to an open shame. What does that mean? Chapter 10, we'll talk about it. We, we looked at the parable last time, the parable of the, of the rain coming on the, on the fields, and one produces a good, 
good harvest, and the other one produces thorns and thistles. And we talked about the end product is critical there, so that the, the whole point is the, the, the outcome of what's happening, not how it got started. Take Matthew 13 and the field of the, um, the parable of the soils. Um, the seed is the same seed, no matter where it falls. Yes or no? Then the problem is not with the seed. The problem is with the soil. And the problem is with the way farmers did sowing in the first century. Instead of doing what we do, plow and then plant where you intend the, 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 the seed to grow, you, you had a sack, and you'd broadcast the seed. Now, you wouldn't throw any seed at the, at the pathway, but some of it's going to land there. If you had been farming this, third generation, farming this same patch of soil, you'd know where the stony soil was and where the thorns were. Yes? So you wouldn't throw seed there, but some of it's going to, grow, it's going to go there. Yeah? But you know if the, any seed that goes there is going, to, is, is going to be fruitless. It's going to yield no harvest whatsoever. It's only the good soil. So where are you going to put your seed? Where the good soil is, yes? Did they plow in those days? Then they plowed it under. Okay. They, they, they sowed first, and then they plowed it under. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, my, but my point is this, that... It's not the seed, nor is it the plants that the parable is about. People say, well, in three of the soils there was life. Yes, but this is not about biology. It's not about botany. This is about farming. What does a farmer want? Plants? He wants a crop. The number of plants is irrelevant if you don't get a crop. Yes? So, so the, if, if, if you're going to start harvesting tomorrow, you first put the sickle to the grain tomorrow, and a thunderstorm comes tonight with hail and high winds, and it's all beaten down, you still have the same number of plants in the field. So why isn't the farmer happy? Because he can't get a harvest now. Are you with me here? So the issue is not what the plants are. and, and so The issue is the harvest, the end product. Same thing here in Hebrews chapter 6 and in that parable that ends the, the uh, warning passage. Then he comes to the application in verses 9 to 12, at which we looked rather briefly last time. Um, we're, we're, and, and in fact, it's a message of encouragement. Most of the people he has great confidence in. The the amazing thing is, though, as we've said since the beginning, I can't tell by looking at a congregation where the real fruit is. I can't even tell by living with a congregation especially if I have the story of Judas in the back of my mind. If I'm Jesus, I can tell. <laughs> but if I'm Peter, I can't tell. If Judas, if, if Peter had known, we said this 
if Peter had known that Judas was the betrayer, Peter would never have let him get out of the room alive. He had a sword with him. Yes or no? Then nobody thought Peter, uh, uh, Judas was the betrayer. They were all worried about themselves. None of them was worried about Judas. So since I can't tell, then I have to, I have to give the encouraging warning to the whole group and not to just some. If I knew who those who were in most danger would be, I could go to them directly and talk to them. But I happen to be one who is in most danger. <laughs> I, yes, I got a doctorate in Hebrew. <laughs> My coffee doesn't cost as much as Starbucks as, as yours does, because I have a doctorate in Hebrew. <laughs> uh, I, I've studied theology for 30, 40 years. I am not safer than anybody else. I'm more in danger than anybody else. Because I can, I can pull this thing off with a good act, and you would never know. Are you with me here? So he goes on, Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another daily, as long as the, as the offer of salvation is being made, uh, so that none of you will fall in the, in the example of unbelief. So the application is carried out there. Okay, that was longer than short. But um, I hope that helped to kind of seal some things in your thinking. Um, now, <laughs> you have to understand, <clears throat> this is inspir- inspiration. This is perspiration. This is never wrong. That can constantly be wrong. Okay? So the, the most important thing is not for you to think of me as, as coming here telling you these things, assuming that you're going to believe everything I say. I, what I want you to do is to start asking questions and not be comfortable with the old answers. Um, the old answers may turn out to be the right ones, but don't just be comfortable with them. Don't take them just because they're tradition. Make them stand on the Word of God, and if they stand on the Word of God, go back to them. Um, but if what I am saying stands on the word of God, then embrace the word of God, not what I'm saying. That, that's not the issue at all here. With verse now, verse 13, we're going to start moving back to the discussion of the priesthood of Melchizedek. We introduce Abraham, <clears throat> but uh, now why is that there? Oh, the anchor. This is a picture of a... Uh, of an inscription of an anchor. You see the circle and the cross. And then you see the uh, wavy lines at the bottom between the fish. That's an anchor. Uh, It's a first century inscription. Anchor was one of the earliest symbols of Christianity in in early Christian art. Anchor and the uh, Noah's, Noah's Ark and the empty tomb were the three most common. The fish didn't even come into existence for hundred or two hundred years. I've forgotten how long it took to get to that, but these were among the earliest. So so what are we talking about here? <clears throat> I want you to notice something that I just learned this week. I didn't know this until this week. I've puzzled over it, but like so many other things, there are lots of puzzles back in my mind, and I don't always draw them out and try to solve them. 
but I, I keep waiting for somebody to solve them for me. And I finally, in the last two weeks, saw where this is going. So look at verse 13. What's the first word in verse 13? Four. Four. That means that what he's saying in verse 13 is, is basing itself upon what he's just been saying. You know? Well, what has he just been saying? Look verse 11 and 12. <clears throat> We're eager for each of you to show the same zeal for the, for the fulfillment of the hope to the end so that none of you will be dull, going back to chapter 5, verse 11, none of you will be dull, but imitators of those who through faith and long-suffering inherit the promises. Faith and long-suffering. For to Abraham... God promised. Note the word promise at the end of verse 12 and now in verse 13. To Abraham, God promised, since he, could, he had no one else to swear by, by who was greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. If you have marginal references, where does that quotation come from? Where, what verse? 17. 17. What's in Genesis 22? I mean, folks, this is the f- these last two weeks are the first time I've ever thought this thought. This is so exciting, I can't wait to get it out. What's in Genesis 22? Sacrifice of Isaac. Let's, let's go briefly with the sacrifice of Isaac. You know the story. <laughs> Genesis 22, 1. In modern English, if I translated it into modern English, it would be, this is a test. This is only a test. If this had been an actual emergency, you would have been instructed where on the AM dial to to turn for emergency instructions. Um, Then the Lord tested Abraham, and he said, take your son, your only son. I may even paraphrase this, your beloved son, whom you love. Isaac, whose name recalls the giving of the promise of his birth, laughter, and offer him to me as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. What's, What's the next statement if you have your Bible open to Genesis 22? I can't hear. Rose. Early the next morning. He didn't delay at all. Got up early. Did he go talk to Sarah? How do you know? She would have told him. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, he never made it out of the camp. <laughs> so, so he rose early in the morning, and he, he cut the wood, and he saddled the donkey, and he got the servants, and they started out. And the next verse, on the third day, they saw the mountain at a great distance. And he said to his servants, you stay here with the donkeys. The boy and I will go up there and we will worship and we will return. Um, and they walked up to the mountain and Isaac, how, how, how did Abraham find the ability to speak in this circumstance? 
Isaac said, Father, here is the fire, and here is the wood, but where is the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham said, The Lord will provide, my son. And they walked on. Uh, Whenever you see the word together, I think it occurs maybe two, maybe three times in that passage. It's the same word as only back in the early part of the chapter, or what I called beloved. It's, it's the same root. So it's, it's underscoring. It's, it's, like, it's like hammer blows against Abraham as, as he is facing this situation. How did he answer his son? The Lord will provide. I, I know how he, got the, how he got the words in his mind. How did he get them through his throat is, the, is what I can't imagine I would have been in tears going up there. And he built the altar and arranged the wood. <laughs> Isaac has to be something between 15 and 20 when this event occurs because he's carrying the wood for the sacrifice. Yes? So here comes Dad with a rope. we got no animal to offer. We're going to make a burnt offering. And Dad starts walking toward me with a rope. I'm between 15 and 20. Dad's between 115 and 120. I can run. It's all downhill. Or I could fight him, and I got 100 years on him. Yes? So I could probably take him. And Isaac submits to being tied up and laid on the altar. And the text says, Abraham stretched out his hand. The story slows down profoundly at this point it goes into slow motion how long does it take to reach out and take a knife an instant not even a second right but we're watching as his hands going out and the voice comes from heaven abraham abraham hear my lord do not raise your hand against the boy now i know that you fear god (laughs) that's a that's a royal recognition that that allows the court to know what the king knows and has known all along. Um, how, what's going on here? It's not only important that you know the passage, it's, it's important that you know where the passage is in the story. We are now, in Genesis 22, 11 chapters into the story of, of, of Abraham. Yes? Something in the neighborhood of 40 years have elapsed since chapter 12. If Abraham is, if Isaac is 15, then 40 years have elapsed. Abraham was 75 when he went to the land, waited 25 years for the birth of the boy. He's at least, Abraham, Isaac is at least 15 at this point. So we've got 40 years that have elapsed. How has Abraham survived 40 years? How did he survive the 25 years waiting for the firstborn? We'll look at verse 13 again. I'm sorry, not 13, 12. One, one point back on the, that, that uh, when you move through that story of Abraham and Isaac, and then you get to 19, Isaac is never mentioned there. Yeah. It's almost like he is the representative of Christ. Yeah. And so you don't hear anything else about God. Mm-hmm. It says Abraham went back to the young men and they left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
The story is about Abraham. It's not about Isaac. It's about Abraham. Isaac comes off pretty well in the story, I think. He's a, he's a man who's learned to trust his father. But, um, but the story's about Abraham. So again, I say... You still see it, it, it was, it, it, it's just strange that he didn't say Abraham and Isaac and one yeah. of the young men. In fact, we turn away almost entirely from the immediate family. Uh, we start talking about Laban and, and, and uh, uh, his family back in Haran and chapter 23. What is 23? Uh, forgotten 23. Is that the wife for Isaac? And 24 is... I've forgotten now. 24 is the, the death of uh, Sarah. So we're moving the old generation off the, off the scene. The rest, the rest of the story of Abraham is about the end of his generation. And Isaac doesn't figure in it. Um, so I don't... I, at the, the story's about Abraham. So again I say, how did Abraham... How long... All of you have done this. You, you, you are going someplace you've never been before and you're following somebody else's instructions how to get there. How long is the trip there and how long is the trip back? Pardon? Yeah. And it's so quick, coming back, you're surprised. So, so when you don't know the route, you don't know how long this is going to take, it seems like it takes forever. How long is 25 years when you don't know it's going to be 25 years? Jim, it doesn't say in the Bible, but that's why it seems to me that when God spoke to Abraham, I've always believed that it must have been an audible mm-hmm. voice as opposed to just what we just still small. I had a feeling mm-hmm. that thing. Oh yeah, it's more it than that. It had to have been something right. very audible. So, so here we've got this twenty-five years wait for the firstborn son. Then he waits fifteen more years, and God says, "I want you to kill him." How did Abraham make it? Look at verse 12. How did Abraham make it for that period? Why is God giving him this promise that we have quoted in verse 13? Observe that verse 13 begins four. Hmm? Yeah. He patiently endured through long suffering. This is, this is the pattern that the author of Hebrews wants his hearers to adopt, who through faith and long suffering inherit the promises. And I get the promise, the promise given, but not fulfilled in the lifetime of Abram. And Abraham still has to persevere long-suffering, waiting for the fulfillment of the promises. So what, what, what is the message for the book of Hebrews? Going back, we've, we've talked about 3, 12, and 13. Let me add another key passage here, and it's this one, verse 13, or verses 12 and 13, uh, so that you may not be dull, but imitators of those who through faith and long-suffering inherit the promises. For God promised to Abraham... Uh, In verse 15, look at it. And thus, by long-suffering, he obtained the promises. They didn't have long-suffering. They hadn't been believers that long. Yeah. He spent his whole life. Yeah. But but you see, this is my point. The the message of Hebrews is about uh, suffering. 
It's about persevering in suffering because you trust the God who made the promise. If God can, as Hebrews 11 will say, uh, he, he, Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead, from which he did receive him in a figure. You remember this? So, uh, in a way, Abraham did. I mean, Isaac was a dead man in, in Abraham's eyes. Well, chapter 10 tells us that they had already gone through some persecution. And the book is saying there's more coming. We, we have been hoodwinked, and we've talked about this on other occasions as Americans, into thinking that the necessary uh, norm for life is peace, prosperity. Um, and that's not been human history anywhere in human history. It's been war, and it's been hardship and suffering. Life's been tenuous. And all the more so is that the case for those who are strangers and aliens on the earth, as Hebrews 11 will describe these people. So, so if that's the case, then the message of Hebrews is you've got to hold on to Jesus. You've got to have a concept of Jesus, a concept of God's plan, that will allow you to, to suffer like Abraham suffered 25 years waiting for one boy to be born Changing your name from exalted father to father of a multitude. How many kids you got one? Multitude. Kind of grand, isn't it? Uh, well, he's a big boy. <laughs> he's a very large son. But, the, uh, but the, uh, the issue is 25 years waiting was interminable. When you're 75 and you're waiting for the birth of your first child, 25 more years, that's got to be interminable. And he's going to live to be 175, and by that time he will have two grandsons. That's it. Um, so, so the uh, see, uh, Isaac was 40 when he got married, so Abraham was 140, and uh, the boys were about 40 when they married Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Esau. So uh, he didn't even get to see Jacob and Esau married. Pardon? Jacob. Jacob made up for it. <laughs> but, but, the, but my point is to say, Abraham becomes the, the primary um, uh, illustration of what faith and long-suffering looks like. And the circumstance, knowing that this came from Genesis 22, is critical to understanding this passage. I, I read past this for years. Folks, I started studying Hebrews in 1967 or 68. And I've read this, I can't even tell you how many times I've read it. But it's only been in the last two weeks. I, it's in Genesis 22. Oh my goodness, what a major lapse this has been. All the time I've taught Hebrews, I've missed that. And it's, uh, it's critical to the passage. So he goes on to say, uh, and thus, by, in, by enduring, he obtained the promises. Um, Men swear by what's greater. And um, without any contradiction, an oath settles everything. So once you've taken an oath in that culture, you have settled the argument. So verse 17. Um, so in this matter, God was especially anxious 
to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of his plan mediated it with an oath. God doesn't need to make oaths. Why do we ask people to take an oath in court? Then, then we can bring the law against uh, the uh, the liar, the perjurer. Um, God can't lie. Everything God says and does is true. So why does He need to take an oath? We take an oath because we're liable to lie, and He can't tell who's going to lie and who isn't. Well, why does God take an oath? Because He's been known to change His mind. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Well, I know, but he, you know. He can't change his mind. He can change his actions, but he can't change his mind. Is God wise? Yes. How wise is he? Totally. Hmm? Totally Totally wise. Infinitely wise? Someone has defined wisdom. Yes, ma'am. Ah, and that's, that's where we're headed. If, if someone defined wisdom as choosing the very best possible means to accomplish the very best possible goals, would anything less than that be wise? Choosing the very best possible means to accomplish the very best possible goals. Would there be anything short of that that would be wise? No. So if God changed his mind... He would have to change his mind either about the goals or the means. So the means that he had or the goals that he had weren't the best possible. The ones that he's changed to now become the best possible. Or they're not as wise as they were. Are you with me here? So God can't change his mind. It's not, not, that's not a category that I can apply to God. He can change his actions. In Jonah... Sounds like God changed his mind. Yes? Yes? Yes. Right. But did he? Any of you have rental property? That you okay. Uh, if if your renters don't pay, what do you do? Kick them out. Kick them out. <laughs> you can't do that first. What do you have to do? Yeah, give them notice of foreclosure. Not foreclosure, but uh, what's the word? Eviction. Um, why do you have to do that? It may be the law. I don't know. I assume that it's the law. But, but there's a more important reason. Give a chance to repent. You, you'd rather have a slow pay than no pay on the rental property. Yes? So, so you want them to pay. You don't want the property to sit empty. So God gave 40 days notice to Nineveh. Did he not know? Jonah knew. If I go there and preach destruction, they're going to repent and you're going to save them. If Jonah knew that, did God know that? Then did God change his mind? Or was the proclamation of coming judgment the means of bringing repentance in Nineveh? Are you with me here? So God didn't change his mind. God can't change his mind. So why does he give an oath? He wants to certify to the recipients of the promise how certain, how how absolutely unchangeable his plan is. And there are two things, he says, look there at um, verse uh, 18, so that by two uh, uh, things which are unchangeable, 
um, he might uh, assure, uh, give strong encouragement uh, in, in, in which it's impossible for God to lie. We might have sh- uh, strong encouragement, we who have fled to lay hold of the proffered hope. Well, what are the two things? The, the commentaries are divided on this. Basically, it's his word and it's his oath. He's made the promise and he's made the oath. And those two things, he's not going to change them. Um, then if, if that's the case with God's oath, and Jesus is priest after the order of Melchizedek by God's oath, as he will say very shortly, then we'll have strong encouragement to hold on. Yes? Because his word declaring Jesus Melchizedek and priest and his oath makes certain to us the, the assurance of the, of the confidence that we can have in him so it goes on let me catch up here somewhat um, uh, verse uh, 19 this hope we have as an anchor of our soul secure, steadfast entered into the inner uh, uh, part of the veil where the forerunner has, uh, has entered in for us Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek, a priest, having become a priest, uh, high priest forever. Uh, do you, have you been taught anything about forerunner? Okay, this is... John the Baptist. Yeah. Okay, the word forerunner is, is a pioneer who's gone out to blaze the trail for the troops that are following and so Jesus has blazed the trail. We go back to what we talked about in Matthew 7 a couple of times, I think, in this study. Enter by the narrow gate, because broad is the, is the gate, and easy is the way that leads to destruction. Many of the are find it. How narrow is the gate? How restricted is the way? Um, a blazed trail is not usually a big highway. Yes. <laughs> you, have, you have signs chopped in the trees, or you have rocks piled up, but... It's not a big highway, and you've got to you've got to work your way through the wilderness. And this is Jesus is the forerunner. He's gone ahead, <clears throat> and he's made the whole trip. He's already gone into the into the holy of holies. He's behind the veil now, unlike Aaron, who was only behind the veil once a year, or one day a year. Uh, he, but he's there permanently, and we'll see before long seated at the right hand of God. So so this is the anchor that we have. If Jesus, I, I had a student in Memphis. He was coming up to graduation. I think we, I may have mentioned this to you. I'm sorry to repeat it, but it becomes exceedingly important at this point. He said, uh, uh, how do I know that if I, had, if I had been born in an Arabic country, I wouldn't be Islamic? I might have been a Muslim. So how do I know that my Christian confession is more than just a cultural um, issue for me conforming to the culture that I've I've been born in? Of course, the answer to the question that he posed is not something that anybody can give. How do do I know? Well, I, I can't answer that for you. I don't know for you what that means but there is something else that I can look at, and that is the one thing that makes Christianity essential. 
and that's the resurrection. Everything depends on the resurrection. If Jesus is risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, then everything he said was true, and everything that he did, he actually did. Are you with me here? So Romans um, chapter 3, is it? I lose things from time to time. Uh, it's 520. No, it's not 5. It's 4. Romans chapter 4. And I think it's the last verse of the chapter. Let's see if that's right now. Um Yes, he was handed over because of our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification. Um, if Jesus is resurrected, then the claims that we make to justification are valid. I can say to any believer in Jesus, you are right in God's eyes. I know that because Jesus is, is resurrected. Are you with me here? So... The resurrection is critical for us in this regard. So um, the priesthood of Jesus, mind you, where does he carry on his priesthood? In heaven. Yeah. In the summer of 1974, I took a theology of Hebrews course at Dallas Seminary, and the guy, the prof, said... Um, Jesus wasn't a high priest on earth. He had to be a high priest on earth. He offered a sacrifice. Yes? And the answer is no. That's not where you offer a sacrifice. The priest brings the animal to the altar, but it's the worshiper who brings the sacrifice. Are you with me here? The priest takes the blood inside the tabernacle. That's where the priest does his priestly work, in the holy place. Are you with me? So what's Jesus doing? Well, he's seated at the right hand of God. He's doing his high priestly ministry. In chapter 8, he's going to say, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Okay? So how important is this Melchizedekan priesthood that we're now uh, set up for? I'm set up for it because I see now the greatness of Abraham. He's the pattern that the author of Hebrews wants all of his readers to adopt through faith and long-suffering inherit the promises. But it, how great is this Abraham? Well, he's the pattern. But then where does Jesus fit into this? Well, that's what chapter 7 is going to pick up. So let's start into chapter 7. In 7, 1 and 2, uh, he comes back now thoroughly to the Melchizedekan priesthood. And he says, For this Melchizedek was priest of Salem, priest of Most High God, who met Abraham when he was returning from the uh, battle with the kings, and uh, he blessed him. Um, and, and to him, he even gave a tithe from the spoils, Abraham did, uh, who is first. And so from that point on, he, he begins to explain the details of the story. He starts by giving us the essentials that we need to know about Melchizedek. Well, there they are on the screen. Kekum Salem, 
king of righteousness, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, blessed him, received tithes. Okay? In verses 2 and 3, the rest of 2, and in verse 3, he will then interpret all this. Um, he says, he is first, by interpretation, king of righteousness, then king of peace. Salem in Hebrew, shalem, sounds very much like the word shalom. And so king of peace. It's king of righteousness. Jeru shalom. Jeru yeah, You're, well, but Melchizedek, the, the city that he is, he is king of, is called Salem. It's later Uru Salima in uh, Akkadian and so on. So it's a very ancient name. But the, but the point is he's king of peace. Yes? Now what do we make of all this? Well, he's without father and without mother, without genealogy. Well, Melchizedek must be a Christophany because I don't know who anybody else is without father and without mother. But Jesus had a mother, I want you to remember. Yes. Well, what does it mean? Well, without father and without mother have that phrase, those two phrases have uh, certain meanings in the first century. Um, one of them is one whose parents are dead. I am without father and without mother. My dad died in 1985, my mother died in 2011, so I'm without father and without mother. Okay, doesn't mean that I'm eternal <laughs> or I'm a Christophany, <laughs> but this is the way this language was used in the first century. A second way it's used is a foundling whose parents are unknown. Okay, so um, I can't think of anybody who's famous as, who's a foundling that you could refer this to, but you can understand it adequately. Or third, one whose genealogy is not unknown, and so he adds without genealogy. Folks, name the most important characters in the book of Genesis. You can do that fairly readily, I think. Adam and Eve. Cain, Abel, right? Who else? Well, between Abraham and Noah. Yeah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph, and Melchizedek. Except that Melchizedek's only referred to in one passage, so he may not be that significant. But of, of, of those nine people, how many of them do you know the genealogy of? Eight. Eight. Well... Adam was created by God, so you know their, their genealogy. <laughs> so, so I have every significant person in Genesis has a genealogy except Melchizedek. Well, is he that significant? Must be because he talks about it again and again. And yeah. There's only, there are only three places in the Bible that talk about Melchizedek. Genesis uh, 14, uh, Psalm 110, and then Hebrews 5 and 7. Um, so, so is he that significant? He must have been an enormous figure at that place at that time. Yeah. Well, think about it, though, this way. Think about it from the, the context of the book of Hebrews. Abraham is the model of persevering faith. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham, receives tithes from him. He models Christ. Yeah. But more than that, he's greater than Abraham. See, it's, it's, it, right now, the, the point is to establish the greatness of Melchizedek. 
Subsequently, we'll see how he models Christ. Right now, we're trying to see, why do we even talk about this guy? Why bring up the fact that he has no genealogy? Name me a priest other than Melchizedek in the Old Testament that doesn't have a genealogy. How recently have you read Ezra and Nehemiah? It's been a while, I imagine. That's not one of our favorite passages. There are two geneal two lists of people who returned from Babylon, one in the early part of Ezra, one in the latter part of Nehemiah. They're essentially identical lists. And in it, it talks about uh, the people who came from this village and how many there were and that village and how many there were. And then it talks about the, the Levites and the priests. After that, it talks about a group of people who claimed to be of the tribe of Levi but couldn't provide a genealogy, so they were told they couldn't take part in the sacrifices until a priest, uh, someone arose who could, who could identify their genealogy. So a priest... The one thing the Old Testament requires of a priest is that he have a genealogy. Melchizedek has none. Okay. Now, is this then Jesus? Well, given what we have here on the screen, where's my marker here? The, of these three, only the last one really fits Melchizedek. That's the real point here. He's a priest without genealogy. That's unheard of. For the Old Testament. If you're without genealogy, you don't belong. Remember Dathan and Abiram? Yes, no? Move your heads. Okay. The book of Numbers, Dathan and Abiram were, were Levites, but they got mad at uh, uh, Aaron and Moses because you take too much upon yourselves. We also are Levites. We also are, are um, of the blessed of line. And God says, well, okay, we'll see. <laughs> and he takes the staffs of the various tribes and lays them out, and it's Aaron's rod that buds. You remember this? Uh, so Dathan and Abiram, even though they're Levites, can't aspire to be priests because they're not of the line of Aaron. Genealogy is essential to priesthood, yet Melchizedek has none. But this was before the Mosaic Law, the Aaron priesthood or anything. Yes, but think, never, think, think broadly. <laughs> You're dealing with Hebrews now, yeah. You're you're dealing with the Book of Hebrews. You got you got 15 centuries of teaching about priesthood, and it's all about genealogy. You see the point? So by the time we get to Hebrews, you can't even conceive of a godly priest who who doesn't have a genealogy. Well, I think it's hugely important because it breaks the point. It's not because you're a Jew you're going to be saved. Yeah. So here we we move on. Is he then the pre-incarnate Christ? And the answer is no. And the reason I know that is right in the text. Demarest says if the statements of verse 3 are interpreted in a very strictly literal sense, Melchizedek would appear as a suprahuman figure whose priesthood would encroach upon the eternal priesthood of Christ. But it doesn't. Why not? Well, what does the text say? Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, being made like the Son of God. Um, he abides a priest forever. Uh, I used to tease my kids. I feel more like I do right now than I have in years. That's about as stupid a statement. 
<laughs> yes. You can't make a person like himself. He either is himself or he's not himself. But yes. So if this, if Melchizedek is made like Jesus, then he's not Jesus. He's not a pre-incarnate Christ, and that's the most important statement I can make on this measure on this issue. So, what are we to make of this? Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Aaron's priesthood. I, I go back to an illustration I gave you some weeks ago. Um, I was teaching Romans about the thorough work that Jesus does in, in uh, dealing with our sin and providing for us eternal life. And a student came up to me after class one day. And it was getting later in the semester, so we were making good progress through the book. And he said, you know, I believe, with my head, I believe everything you say in the book of Romans. But he said, I was raised Catholic. And he said, the Catholics say, if you'll give us their children uh, until they're five, we'll have them the rest of their lives. And he said, as much as I believe what you're saying, when I sin, I feel like I need to go to the priest to get absolution. He said, I don't feel forgiven until I've gone to the priest. Now think about an ancient Jew, first century Jew, who's heard about Jesus, has become impressed with the message of Jesus. He's heard the claims, and he started hanging around the church and coming to the meetings and listening to the teaching and listening to the testimonies of the people and, 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 and sharing in the community of love that the church ought to be. And yet he gets into sin. The one thing he knew as, an, as a Jew was, even if I live a thousand miles from the tabernacle, from the temple, every morning they're making a bird offering, and that's for my sin. Every evening they're making a bird offering. It's for my sin. There's hope for me. I sin tomorrow. They're going to make a bird offering morning and evening tomorrow. I have hope for my sin. I, 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 I'm not hopeless in all this. Then you come to Jesus. How many sacrifices do you have? Only one. And your, your entire schooling, like my student who was raised Catholic, your entire schooling is, yes, but the priests are making sacrifice every day. We may trust in that. But nothing new is happening with Jesus. That was done 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Can it be that useful? Well, I have to have a priest who has a fit sacrifice and has a ministry that doesn't end in order to survive with this book of Hebrews. And that's why he comes to Melchizedek. He's going to lay this out for us. So Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Aaron. The danger is going to be for a first century Jew going back to Aaron. Um... I know people, you do too, you grew up in traditions uh, that are not necessarily the traditions that Stonebriar has, <laughs> and uh, some of them you miss. 
perhaps. Um, I grew up in a, in a revivalistic group. We had a, an invitation every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening. Amen, brother. And then I, we came and visited a church in Dallas, downtown, whose name shall remain unmentioned. And they even had invitations on Wednesday night. Uh, boy, this is a really evangelistic church. Wednesday night, but it was downtown so folks could come in off the street. Um, and I know people who come to a place like Stonebriar and they, when, when are you going to have an invitation? Why don't you invite people to come to the Lord? We do. We just, we just don't do it the way others do. Are you with me here? Chuck almost always has some kind of gospel invitation at the end of the message. Am I right? So um, we do. It's just different. Well, when are we going to do this or that or the other thing? You know, that's a tradition. Do, do the traditions determine our status with God? And there are people who will say yes. And, a certain, and, and folks, if you could say that about your church tradition, how much more could somebody say that about the traditions surrounding the temple of God in Jerusalem at which the Aaronic priests functioned? Are you with me? Well, it's the same way with the law. With, with the law. With yeah. Jews and Catholics, they, intellectually may, they may accept it, but they still can't accept it. Yeah. The law is so much a part of, uh, yeah, keeping the law is so much a part of even the church I grew up in um, that, you know, you just, if, if you're disobedient, if you've been disobedient this week, it's because you don't love Jesus enough and you need to rededicate your life so you'll love Jesus more. It didn't help, at least me. It, it may have helped others, but it didn't help me. My, my point is to say, if I can't go back to Aaron, which was a God-ordained priesthood and a God-ordained sacrificial system and a God-ordained temple, if I can't go back to Aaron without abandoning Jesus, what am I going to do about abandoning Jesus for church tradition? Uh, that was Our church traditions aren't necessarily... Divinely ordained. But yeah. stumbling block. Well, sometimes they are. Uh, invitations can be done very, very well and very, very poorly. Um, I've seen them done both ways. Um, my, my point is, though, that, uh, for example, the confessional for a Catholic, the priest's ministry for a Catholic, can become an alternative to the work of Christ. How, how can I go back to that? You see, the danger now is not that we're going to abandon Jesus for Islam as much, right? None of us thinks that that's going to help me a bit. But I might have some element of my church tradition that will be a substitute for Jesus. Well, I just feel better when I do this. What's that got to do with anything? <laughs> Where did God say, I've, I've done these things so you'll feel better? I have intended to make peace between you and me. If you can't trust that, if you've got to wait on your feelings. What, am, am I making any sense to you here? What, what I've got to do is, is suggest ways in which this becomes a critical issue for you and me. 
uh, I can't go back to, uh, um, well, what was the fellow? Ken, I can't think of his name. Pastored at, at Bellevue for years and years. R.G. Lee. Well, well, Dr. Lee used to say, well, yes, but Dr. Lee's not an apostle. As much as I might appreciate Dr. Lee, he wasn't an apostle. Yes? Um, I've got to take Dr. Lee and Dr. No, I'm, I'm trying to think of our pastor, um, Swindoll, <laughs> Dr. Swindoll and Dr. Allman. Nothing that we say trumps scripture. So if I say something that doesn't fit with scripture, you stay with scripture. It doesn't matter. Am I, am I making sense to you? Um, there's more that we could say about that, but... I just wanted to sketch some ways to begin to think, okay, these people were going back to at least what God commanded in the Old Testament, but it's been superseded now. We don't have anything like that. Is there any attraction for us someplace else? Well, folks, how about civil religion and equating uh, faith in Jesus almost with being a Republican or being a, um, a conservative politically. Um, folks, that is really hurting us in a lot of ways. And it really bothers me. I'm, I'm a veteran. I'm thankful that I served. Wasn't then, but I am now. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, and, and under the circumstances, I would do it again just as I did it um, back then, but I don't think it's right for us to have American flags on the pl- platform of our churches. I don't think it's right for us to, to, uh, to uh, honor the veterans. We did our duty. We did what we, were, what we were by law required to do. Some of us did it more willingly and some of us did it less willingly, but all of us did it. Are you with me here? But that was simply doing our duty. We don't honor taxpayers on April 15th. Yes? So by, by joining the church and the state too closely, we're in danger of actually abandoning Christ because when it comes to the point where I have to stand against the state, what do I do then? Are you with me here? I, I love America. I, I, I weep at the national anthem. The, the flag brings tears to my eyes. I love what our country has stood for. But I have to separate that from my faith and make that a distinct thing. So there are things that we can slide into very easily in which Jesus becomes an add-on and is not the real core of what we're doing. So in Hebrews, we're called to see this person who is God himself, who now is superior to Moses and Joshua and Abraham and to Aaron and to the tabernacle, and to the sacrifices, and to the old covenant, and everything that he is, he's superior. And everything is worth sacrificing for him, because he sacrificed everything for us. So it seemed appropriate to stop and talk about these things for a few minutes. Melchizedek is then greater than Aaron. 
Uh, therefore, Aaron's sacrifice, his ministry, is insufficient for granting the promises. Let's, let's at least read down through verse 11 here. Um, verse 4. For you see how great a person this one was, to whom Abraham gave a tithe from the, uh, from the loot, uh, the, the patriarch, gave a tithe, tithe from the, the plunder, by the way, it was a tithe from the plunder. He didn't tithe. We have no record that Abraham tithed anything that he owned. There's not a single statement that ever says that Abraham tithed anything that he owned. Jacob is given as a, as a, a model of tithing too, but we have no record that Abraham uh, that Jacob ever paid a tithe. He vowed, but we know, and we have no record that he paid it. So we don't have real good examples before the law for tithing. Just point that out. But if Abraham is as great as we saw him to be at the end of chapter 6, who is this Melchizedek to whom Abraham pays tithes? And he goes on, verse uh, 5, and those who who are of the uh, sons of Abraham who have received priesthood have a commandment to impose tithes on the people according to the law. That is, their own brothers even though they came out of, the, out of the loins of Abraham. But the one who has no genealogy from them imposed tithes or took tithes from Abraham. Uh, and he blessed him who had the promises. Now I've got to stop and talk about blessing for a few minutes. We've got about four left. Blessing doesn't mean, I hope God will be real good to you. Uh, best place I know to go go see what this means. The word's not used there, but it's in Second First Samuel chapter one. Hannah is childless. You remember the story, and she she won't participate in any of the feasts. Now, the reason she won't participate in the feasts is she's not experiencing the the blessing of God. She has no child, so she's there at the tabernacle praying. Her, her lips are moving. She's not speaking aloud, but her lips are moving. And she's praying out of the bitterness of her heart because she's longing for a son. And Eli thinks she's drunk. I, Eli gets bad press. I think he's a better man than most of us give him credit for being. But he had some major failings in his life, like everybody else I know. Um, uh, he said, don't get drunk and come here. She said, oh, my Lord, I am not drunk. I'm praying out of the bitterness of my soul. And our text says something like this. Eli said to her, Well, go your way, and may the Lord grant your request. And she went back to her family's gathering, and she ate and she drank. First place, Eli can't have a great reputation in Israel because of his sons. Yes? And he's an old man probably respected for his age, but he's still a very old man. And he says, gee, you're drunk. And she says, no, I'm I'm not drunk. I'm praying. Oh, gee, I hope God will bless you. And that turns everything around for her. And she goes back and eats and drinks. The Hebrew will permit and would normally be translated this way. Not may the Lord grant your request. Go your way and the Lord will grant your request. He's a priest. He has the right to speak the word of God. He's a high priest, has the right to speak the word of God. He spoke the word of God, and sure enough, 
when she got back to uh, her home, she became pregnant, had a son, and vowed him to the Lord. You remember this. The point is that blessing means to speak the word of God about God supplying everything that's needed for life and prosperity. I'm sorry, life and service. When God blesses, he gives everything that's needed for life and for service. When um, Eli gave her that statement, the Lord will grant your request, that was a blessing. It wasn't just, gee, I hope God will be nice to you. It was a statement that God was going to supply. Are you with me here? Yeah, she had faith, and so the, the, the promise was fulfilled. The point is that when, when Melchizedek blesses Abraham, first of all, Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. He's a, he is a, 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 a spokesman for God. He's a high priest and speaks the word of God, and he speaks the blessing of the blessed man. Yes? Therefore, Abraham surely must have believed that Melchizedek had something to do with yeah. that victory that he achieved. Well, not necessarily. Um, but God had something to do, and so he gives the tithe in that regard. So he goes on, yeah, chapter 7. Was gonna happen, yeah, he goes on with chapter 7. Um, let's see. We read down through verse 6. Verse uh, 7. Without any contradiction, the less is blessed by the greater. That's normally the case, except we have examples in the Old Testament. Uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. I am lesser than God, and I can't bless him. So what are we doing when we bless the Lord? We're, we're acknowledging him as the giver of all blessing. Are you with me here? So, so uh, normally speaking, the blessing word, the word that enables, that makes the provision of all things necessary for life and service, comes from somebody greater, in this case, Melchizedek to Abraham. Verse um, 8, And here, men who die receive tithes, but there, one about whom it says he lives. And as it were, I don't know what you have in verse 9, but this, this is a very important phrase, it's a phrase that is telling us what follows is figurative. If, if, if you want to read it, we might paraphrase this. If you want to read it this way, um, through Abraham, Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when, he met Mel, when Melchizedek met him. This is not saying that um, Levi was already in existence in his father's loins. This is not that view at all. It's a figure of speech. Are you with me here? My translation says, so to speak. So to speak, yeah. So when we turn to verse 11 next week, we're going to start talking about the contrasts in, in, in 7 and 8. We're going to start talking about the contrast between the, the Aaronic and the Melchizedek and priesthoods. And they are, they are uh, rich and long-lasting. So that's what we'll turn to next week. It's 8 o'clock, so I, I must stop. But, uh, Kate, what are you thinking? Nothing. Okay. Empty-headed. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's have a word of prayer. Father, if this is our Jesus, then our hearts are too cold.
um, warm us up. Give us a hope in Jesus that transcends every hope that we have for this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I haven't thought much about uh, you know, kids today.